Think of a unit that operates far behind enemy lines, raids their strongholds, extracts high-value targets and spearheads other, more conventional military deployments. Who comes to mind? Maybe, if you're British, it might be the SBS or the SAS. For Americans, perhaps Delta Force. What if I was to tell you that during the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, the British had a unit that performed all of these tasks and much more? Intrigued? Then stick around to find out more. Hi guys, welcome back to the Redcoat History podcast and YouTube channel, the home of British military history. Today I'm joined by a really good friend of mine, Cam Simpson, author of many books on British and Australian military history. Cam is a former soldier who knows fighting men and their stories inside out. Today's chat is all about the frontier light horse who fought with great distinction during the Anglo-Zulu War. Cam has written a book on the unit, so if you like this subject, be sure to look that up. He gives details of where it can be found at the end of the interview. I started off by asking Cam to tell us how the FLH began. Yeah, okay, so the, the Frontier Light Horse came about in December in 1877, and what was going on there in South Africa on the Eastern Cape, the Ninth Frontier War was being fought, which was basically a conflict between the Cape Colonial Government and the Amakosa. Now, at the time, you've got Sabatul Freya, who was trying to federate in, in South Africa, and that was his vision. He wanted to see federation much like what was happening up in, um, in Canada or it had, had happened in, in Canada earlier on. So at this time, there was, between the um, Cape government and the imperial government, namely Sabatul Freya, they had... A, a bit of angst and a bit of um, bit of a punch up was going on behind closed doors about who's going to command the troops in the field. On paper, the the imperial government did, but however, the reality in the field was something different, and the colonials were actually running the show. The bulk of the troops at the early part of the campaign had come from the Cape Colonial Government. So just to clarify for anyone who doesn't know, that would mean essentially locally recruited white troops. That would be the de definition of colonial troops. Is that right? Yeah, and levies as well. They had native levies as well, but vast contingents of them. Um, so you had, you had a standing colonial militia and volunteers. Um, these men would be mobilised and called up. Then they would specially recruit just for the duration of the war, native levies, etc., or some special um, regiments, which would predominantly be whites or colours as well. Um, and they would come from the, the Cape government, paid for by the Cape. So the imperial government realised that we need some of these local troops under our control. They weren't entirely happy with the quality. They possibly didn't understand the way they operated. But they were effective, um, mostly. Other units were not. There was desertions. People were dragged away from their homes as well, especially those that were mobilised. Um, like, say, if you're in the, um, the Dukes based here in Cape Town and you're mobilised and you're to go away for a three-month period, then you're leaving your family, you're leaving your business and your job, okay, to go off and fight in a war that you're probably not that interested in. Um, so, you know, you had um, 
men like this that were some of them were eager, but but many men wanted to get back, and, and especially when their their mobilisation period went beyond three months, they were not happy. And this was always a part of colonial warfare in um, South Africa. This subject came up, whether it was in the Cape or it was in Natal. So what they decided to do is that we're going to draw on some of this talent that's out there. We're going to try and get the best of these colonials. And they're not just born and bred in the Cape. There was a lot of people out from home, as they called it, from, from Britain and from around the world. Um, on the Eastern Cape in particular, you know, all, all these seaports, you've, you've got all these seafaring men coming in, disembarking. And when this war was going on, a lot of them were jumping ship and joining up because they wanted the, a bit of adventure in their lives. Now, so the the government decided that we what we need is a mounted regiment of irregulars, locally recruited, and also an infantry unit. So to pull this together, they brought in um, Major Henry Poulain, who was of the second battalion. He was thirty-eight years of age and just about to be promoted to lieutenant colonel. So that was the famous Henry Poulain of the twenty-fourth uh, regiment, killed at Isandlwana. Exactly. Yep, that, that's the same man. Now, interesting enough that they they brought him in because he was well liked in colonial circles and and appeared to be well connected. So they thought that he would be a good draw card, that he would be able to bring these men in. Now, he ended up taking on um, primarily raising the ranger unit, which became known as Pauline's Rangers or Pauline's Lambs, um, as they also became known as a nickname. Whilst the mounted regiment, um, which was going to be three squadrons strong, uh, of an established strength of about 150 men, but it took a while to get up to that. And they brought in for this job an interesting character whose name became very well known within South African military history right up into the time of the Boer War. And he's probably a session in himself, actually, this guy. And this is Lieutenant Fred Carrington, who was from the 1st Battalion of the 24th Foot. Now, he was 34 years of age. He was a very good sportsman. He was well known in racing circles in South Africa, in particular in um, Cape Town, when he managed to get back back down here. But he'd been in the Army since 1864, 10 years as a lieutenant. He'd been a musketry instructor in his regiment, which is a role that um, no idiot would get. You know, you've, you've got to be capable to get that role. And... Um, he arrives out here on New Year's Day in 1875. Pretty quickly, he's given the task to raise um, a mounted infantry company, which became the first mounted infantry company, and it was recruited from about 40 men of the 24th foot, the best of the best, you know, that, that, that they could find at the time. And he took them up into Kimberley, and then he later took them up into... Um, into the Transvaal, and he took on some more men, the 13th foot, and then he spent a bit of time down in the trans guy as well. So he was the guy that was going to pull all this together, that, the best man for the job, and he most probably was. Him and Pulain worked really, really hard to draw in the best recruits, and they said that the, you know, the, the rangers tended to get the drifters off the boats in Port Elizabeth, uh, from East London, etc. These guys would come in, the, the, generally the drifters, 
and a bit of the riffraff. And, and that regiment after the at the end of the um, Night Frontier War was disbanded. Most of those men went on to, to serve in the Zulu War, though. But the quality of men that they got in the Frontier Light Horse that Carrington drew in was generally considered to be quite good. Good stamp of men. Many of them had come from previous units from the Ninth Frontier War that had served um, for several months. Not all of them were mobilised for full-time service for the duration. Some were in the field for just a matter of weeks at times. So they took a lot of those men. A, a newspaper at the, at the time actually made the comment that the Sergeant Major of the Frontier Light Horse had served at the charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War. Um, I've never been able to identify him, though. Um, it, it may be that the term sergeant major it could have actually been a, a sergeant. Um, but it, but interesting that they made the comment that this is the type of men that they're getting in this regiment. So Carrington started bringing these men together, and then how, how did it develop? They avoided a rush to get them into the field. They, um, they wanted to see a well-trained regiment deploying into the field that is not recruited, equipped, and in a panic-like manner pushed into the field without training. They tried to avoid that. And they really dug their heels in and said, no, we're not doing it. And they were supported. They said, yep, we've got it. The authorities said, we understand, because a part of the need to bring them in the field was to avoid a rushly, um, a rushed mobilised unit that was going to deploy and was going to be ineffective and, and near useless and a, basically a, a waste of pay and, and rations. So they, they got them into the field and they um, they next de deployed on operations. I mean, do you, you want me to go over a, a potted history of their service? Yeah, I think I think if you could give us a, a bit of background to their service, uh, you know, with 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 some sort of key dates, that would be brilliant. Yep. Okay. So listen, I'll just take it all all through then um, how it progressed from that point on. So they they deploy into the field into the Transkei. They're roughly about 100 men strong at that stage, and Carrington's still commanding them. They first see action at a location known as um, Quintana, um, which is in the Transkei. And on the, this is on the 7th of February, 1878. They're up at Ibiza and they're sent down with Captain Upcho, who's also another well-known Zulu war name. And they're with F&G companies, the 24th foot. There's some Fengu um, levies as well. And the force is numbering about 560 men. And they're at, they're at this um, defensive post at Quintana and about 5,000 of the Amakorsa start to approach the camp. They know that there's going to be a fight. There was a little bit of anxiety that they could not draw the, the enemy into fight, that they might see the defences and they might shy away and thus they're not going to close with them and destroy them and try and bring the war to an end. So um, Upcher and Carrington um, discuss the matter, and what they decide to do is that they're going to send out a bit of bait, and they pushed out the Frontier Light Horse, a company of infantry, out of the um, defensive positions, past a series of um, trenches that had been dug and concealed that were actually outside the perimeter. And they had, Upture had some infantry in there. And so they deployed the, the Corsa approach in two distinct columns and they take the bait. 
and they launch an assault prematurely and the Frontier Light Horse and the Infantry com Company retire and, and basically um, the muzzles of the, the Henry Martinis put a stop to the, um, the Corsair assault and they lose about 200 men and then they break the assault off and they retire. The Frontier Light Horse pursues. There's some Frontier Mountain Police with them as well and they also pursue and the Fengu levies flow up as well. And, and so essentially this army is routed at that stage. For the Frontier Light Horse, though, it's as their first action, it was quite successful. Um, they have two men wounded and Carrington's mentioned in dispatches. Um, at, depending on the report you're reading at the time, they, they said that he was, you know, exceedingly brave. Um, he displayed acts of valour, et cetera, in, in leading the Frontier Light Horse. He's also promoted to captain. So this period of 10 years as a lieutenant has just ended for him. Um, I think he, he was a promoted about a, a week later or something like that. A vacancy came up in the second battalion, so he gets that. Um, and at, at that point, um, the regiment remains on operations and then Carrington's dragged away. Can I just quickly interrupt for a second, Cam? Just for anyone who's listening, um, the Hossa were essentially, to, to an untrained eye, would have looked a bit like the Zulus, right? They would have had a sort of sp uh, spear and a shield. Is that right? Yeah, ex exactly. And um, in, in appearance as well, um, sometimes they, um, they like to carry blankets with them. And, and even could um, be wearing European clothing, depending on um, what clan they came from. Right. OK. No, I, th I think that was just worth just worth laying out for anyone who's not sure. And also the name of the battle I've seen spelt and written in a number of different ways. So some people might see it written as Sentane or Kentane as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's the, um, the mountain that it's near. Brilliant. So you can either go by either one, Quintani. Um, or Sentani, okay. Right. So it's um, that's the, the mountain that it, that it's close by. Yeah, yeah. It's quite an important action, actually, and really ideal for the Frontier Light Horse that they were there to experience it. And obviously, there were were there any issues that they felt in the way that they operated, they could um, resolve it soon afterwards. At some stage, some stage, that regiment did need to be engaged and blooded as such. Um, and they're fighting alongside the 24th foot as well, um, which would take a big part of the, the Zulu war later on. So, as I was saying, um, Carrington gets dragged away and um, he's sent up to the Transvaal to work with the Transvaal volunteers. His career takes off at this stage. Um, he's a brevet major soon after. And at, at the end of 1879, he's a lieutenant colonel and he's um, appointed a companion to St. Michael and St. George, a CMG, um, which goes down well with him. Wolvesley at the time didn't think so. <laughs> he, he was quite alarmed that um, he'd, re he'd received that, but whilst he, um, he understood the value of Carrington. Um, so then replacing Carrington um, comes in Major Redvers Buller of the um, 60th Rifles, and he takes command on 22nd of April, 1878. He's 39 years of age. Buller's been in the army for 20 years. 
He's seen operations in China, Red River Expedition, and a shanty where he was wounded there. He knew Buller well from both his time up in the Red River Expedition and in a shanty, and also he knew, uh, well, also Colonel Wood VC, um, who was in himself a, a celebrity in the army at the time. But more importantly, Buller knew soldiers well. He had 20 years of experience under his belt. He had his time up in Canada as well. He'd seen a different stamp of colonial soldier as well. And, he, you know, he really understood men. And what I read about him is that the men generally liked him as well. Um, what one man um, wrote at the time, they thought, you know, basically Buller's the man for us. Um, but, however, when he first joins the Frontier Light Horse, he wrote that there wasn't much credit that we had by associating with them. So his first glance and said, okay, this is probably not going to be good, much good for my career. But his previous job in the Ninth Frontier was a staff officer to Commandant Frost, who headed up all the burgers at the time. And, and Frost was a, um, a burger soldier. He, was, he wasn't a a professional soldier. He was basically mobilised as a, as a third line of defence for the colony. Just to clarify, Cam, uh, by burghers, you mean locally recruited Afrikaans-speaking uh, troops? Yes. Yeah, so they, they in the colony, they ran a, a burger role, so burger list that they managed. So at any time, the government could call on anybody um, that was fit enough and that would have to present themselves with a, with his um, a horse. They're generally going to be armed by the um, by the, the colonial government. So they'd call out the volunteers first, the levies, and if they needed more numbers, they'd call out the burghers. And, of course, the burghers that are on at the seat of the war have got, definitely got a vested interest in making this a success. So if you're going to call out burghers from, you know, let's just say out in the Western Cape to find fight on the um, in the Eastern Cape, they're probably the motivation's not going to be there. And that comes out in a, in a lot of the colonial warfare period. But um, Frost, he headed up all the burgers and um, was very capable. He was a politician, um, farmer as well, and he, he was well known and respected. This is April when Buller comes on board. The war finishes in June. So they've only got a small period to go on operations together. And they do. And it's during this period that Buller realised that he was wrong in his assessment of these men. They were actually quite good and they showed great potential. And he was very much a similar character to Carrington and that the men respected this. And um, they, they worked well together and they worked with Colonel Wood again um, and, and operations, and on 8th of May, they're in a sharp little action um, in the Siskai, which is, um, it was a confusing little fight, and um, the reports vary depending on which one you, you, you read, and the assessments are also varying, but essentially they lose one officer and two men killed. Um, it's a Captain uh, McNaughton that's killed, and one officer and one man wounded. Buller was happy with um, the way that they performed. And then the war comes to an end in June. But as I said earlier on, the other regiment that was raised, Pauline's Rangers, is disbanded. The Frontier Light Horse was not. So 
the imperial authorities, they also see that these guys have definitely got great potential. And there's a campaign that was about to resume up in the um, Transvaal against Sekakuni, the um, king of the Barpedi. So they're going to start moving the frontier light horse up there. But before that they do that, they move back to King Williamstown. Because the men signed up for a six-month period, not all of them wanted to stay on board. Some of them want to go back to their families. Some of them realised I'm not up for this. This is tough stuff. This is operating for extended periods in the field. You're surviving on coffee, a bit of, bit of meat. Um, sometimes you're lucky enough to get a bit of bread. You're going to be in the saddle nearly all day and sometimes throughout the night as well. And plus you can get killed at this game. So some men drifted away. Um, so they're looking at, at bringing the regiment back up to strength. They're, they're looking for about a, 150 men. And they decide to move away from the squadron system and they redesignate the squadron's troops. And they've got three troops at this stage. They bring in um, a, a number of new officers as well. And it's at this time that this chemistry between Buller and the Frontier Light Horse starts to emerge. And a lot of people started to see this. One man even said that, you know, Buller is a man that foresees everything. So they really liked with him and the bulk of the men stay with him. And then in July of um, the same year, so we're still in 1878, the Frontier Light Horse have managed to get up to 200 men. So such is the popularity of this regiment that they, they get 200 men. It's the maximum establishment that the authorities would allow at the time, but they're still in, in three very large troops. And with some um, a small number of wheeled transport, they move from King Williamstown up to Peter Maritzburg, and they cover um, 410 miles in 22 days. So during this period, their um, buller and, and his men are getting to know each other better. They've done a lot of equestrian training back down in King Williamstown, but now they're on the line of march. They're starting to break into a daily routine. They're getting to know each other better. They're perfecting the regiment on the move. So it's, it's on the job training as such, bearing in mind they're only raised in, in December a few months, uh, the previous year. Um, interesting that on this line of march, they're not the only people on the move. Um, the, there was a Royal, Artill Royal Artillery Battery under Major Harness that was moving moving up. And when they're up in the, um, the trans sky, Harness wrote in his diary that they're expecting the Frontier Light Horse to sort of come in any day and sort of anything can be expected. But he called them, he said it was a band of about 200 villainous-looking volunteers when they arrived. Um, I, I kind of kind of like that description, and I'd say that the men probably would as well, um, for what I understood sort of about the characters. But that was the the imperial view of them. You know, look at these guys. They, they, you know, that's probably when Buller first saw them, that they're not going to amount to much. Um, but behind them, it's often been that way through history, hasn't it? Especially with the British, is they've often looked down at. Um... Uh, their their empire colleagues, you know, as, as an Australian, I'm sure there was plenty of examples of that in World War One. Oh, look at these guys, you know, but they could fight. And I guess it was the same with the Frontier Light Horse. Yep, 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 true. Well, well actual fact, when I was in the British Army, I had a, a, a confidential report that said, surprisingly hardworking for an Australian. <laughs> and that's not that long ago. 
but uh, <laughs> I, I laughed at it at the time. And um, anyway, so yeah, I, I like that description. And they get up to Peter Maritzburg, and then they decided, okay, the guys have got to push on, and they've got to complete the 380 miles to co- to go up and join um, Colonel Hugh Rowlands, VC, um, in the operations against Sekakuni. Now, this is around August. The build-up to the Zulu War is happening in the background, in the media for some time, actual fact going back several years, there'd always been this sort of push that the Zulus are a menace. They need to be... Um, Need to be dealt with, and that's the spin doctoring that the um, that the British played at, at the time. So um, the Zulu War is possibly going to happen. So the Barpedi um, campaign it's it short lived, and it's it short lived for a number of reasons. But the generally cited factors that the campaigns aborted is through to a horse sickness that hit the frontier light horse. So within a a day of a horse presenting um, certain symptoms that were a mystery at the time, and I'm not even sure what, what, I haven't followed up to find out what that disease was, but the horse was dead within within a day. There's also a lack of water. So the operations are called off and the men, all they know is that they're going to start moving south again. Now, a lot of the guys were really annoyed and some of them actually said, well, listen, we'll fight on foot. The, the frontier light horse, there was no lack of um, wanting to engage with the enemy. These, these guys were up for it and they wanted to, um, to fight on foot. So in November, they make their way down to Utrecht and more specifically to a, a farm known as Deep Clue Farm. And here they set up a camp and they shake out they recuperate. A few men leave the regiment. Some of the, um, the, the mainly the English volunteers end up going out and um, taking up commissions in the Natal native contingent. And then they leave Deep Kloof and they go off to join their old friend, Colonel Wood. Um, and he's forming number four column at, at Bemba's Cop. So in Lord Chelmsford's army, who's going to command the invasion of Zululand, He's numbered five columns, of which number four column up at Benga's Cop, which is up on the, the western um, side of, of Zululand, is situated there. And Wood's putting together his column. So they go and join number four column. And really from that point on, it ends up with, with a, an amazing story right throughout the Zulu War. So before I get into the actual patrolling regime that goes on and the operations and the battles they fight in the Zulu War. Essentially, they're fighting the Zulu War from January to July 1879. And then there's this pacification operations that's generally termed follow-on, and that rolls through to September of that year. But really for the first seven months, for the frontier light horsemen, this is going to be really, really tough stuff. The patrolling is constant. It's relentless. You know, they're in the saddle all the time for seven months. It is day in and day out patrolling and not short distance stuff. We're talking 40, 50 miles a day. At one stage, Buller even said the, the early stages of the build-up for operations, he was in the saddle continually. So 
besides the patrolling, you also had um, to put out um, vedettes, which is mounted um, pickets, deploy them out into the field. You had convoy escorts, um, wood collecting duty. So in my research for the book, I was continually reading about a company of infantry sent out to bring in firewood. A troop of the Frontier Light Horse or other mounted troops are with them as escorts. And this wood collecting duty was very much a part of daily routine. So after stand two in the morning, someone was sent out somewhere to locate firewood. And in number four column, wood had field kitchens, um, a bakery pumping out bread around the clock. Because all these men, 2,000 odd in total, at different stages, it, it fluctuated numbers in number four column, but all these men need to be fed. There was also a, um, a canteen, just while, while I'm onto it, that followed um, number four column, and the Frontier Light Horse pretty much had to buy a lot of their food from these um, canteens of civilian traders that followed them. They were chased out of camp at one stage because they were selling alcohol, so it wouldn't chase them away, but they had to be let back in because the, the men needed some of the provisions. So this wood collecting, on the surface, it, it's very mundane but very, very vital job. At one stage, they even um, they found coal and men of the 13th foot um, were sent out to bring in the coal. So, you know, if you're in the Frontier Light Horse during these seven months, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be very, very hard work. And when it came to the six-month enlistment issue coming up, Men dropped off and, and disappeared. There were very few desertions in the Frontier Light Horse, but they, they did occur, but it was mainly later on in, in the campaign, but only in small numbers. So it was it was tough stuff. The other, other thing um, worth mentioning just up front is when the regiment deployed into the field, as I said, you're leaving a troop behind um, as guard duty, camp security um, for escort duty as well, and the regiment would deploy in the field generally with, with its two troops. For a while there, they got up to four troops, but it was quick. the D troop was quickly disbanded. So they optimised with about 150 men in the field, so 50 of them are left behind. As soon as you deployed in the field with 100 men, if you're lucky, because you could have men sick, et cetera, um, not fit for patrolling, as soon as they went into action, you, the, you lost about a quarter of your strength through the horse holders. So as you dismounted for action to form a firing line, the horses had to be held. So you lose about a quarter of your strength. So you've only got about 75 men in the firing line. So when, when people visualise um, these mounted regiments deploying into the field and forming a firing line, the horses have got to be held and need to be controlled. And that was a vital job as well. So they lose a lot of their firepower. So just, just to clarify then, Cam, for anyone who's not aware how mounted infantry essentially works, they would dismount to fire. People, you know, they weren't generally riding around shooting their carbines. Yeah, that, that's right. They, every now and then they fired from the saddle, but if they had to form a firing line, they'd have to dismount. One man would, would take four horses, including his own, away um, to the rear and try and get it into some kind of cover. Um, depending on how much firepower the, the Zulu were putting back at them. And um, they had to try to keep them as close as they possibly could and then the remainders in the firing line. So that, that's, that's the way they operated. So as I mentioned earlier on, 
the um, January, the Zulu War starts. The Frontier Light Horse are the first into the field, actually. They're first to patrol into Zululand. They, they start to go in to look for um, routes that the wheeled transport could take, the best way to get all the, um, the convoys in that are supporting these, these columns and all the different regiments. So it's something that's not often thought about, but, um, but it's, a, it's a very real issue. You don't want to be taking you know, your wheeled transport through rocky country or marshy country um, or areas that could be prone for ambush. So they'd look for the, the most likely route, and that, that's pretty much what they're doing. But it's on the, the 20th of January that they're moving up towards the Zungwini Mountain, and it's really their this is their first fight of the, of the Zulu War, and they encounter about 1,000 Abakalusi. Now, the Abakalusi are... Um, are really vassals of the of the Zulus under Ketswayo, and they're they're situated up in the the northwest of um, Zululand. And there's an amazing character. Um, we might as well talk about him now, as he'll pop up in the conversation later on. They're known as Embalini Wa Maswati. Now he was a Swazi. He was about thirty six years of age when the Zulu War started, it failed to ascend the, the Swazi throne and fled to the Pongolo region and um, came under the protection of um, Ketswayo. But he was a real raider of note. You know, they'd go out cattle raiding, etc. And, and this guy was a master at it. Um, he seemed a, a real character. Ketswayo, a lot of respect for him, and, and he was essentially commanding the um, Abakalusi up in this area, although he wasn't in the field all the time when they're engaged um, with number four column. So he's a very interesting character. He had a price on his head of about a thousand pounds, actually. Um, and he was killed later on in the war in 5th of April, I think it was, um, in a, by chance, actually. Um, and, and of all the characters of the Zulu War, he's, he's probably my the most favorite character personally to me. I think he's fascinating. Um, was he, he, he mimics the frontier light horse and what they do. And, you, you know, you could probably just imagine a conversation between him and Buller um, in, in better times and he'd survive. But I think I was prematurely ki killed. Um, yeah. The, the hyena of the Pongola, they called him, didn't they? Yeah, 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 ex exactly. And, and exactly. if anyone's interested, uh, I talk about him quite a bit in my episode on uh, the Battle of Ntombe Drift. So, so there's also a bit extra background there if anyone wants to follow up as well. Yeah, yeah. So he's a, he's a great character for sure. So anyway, so they, they're approaching this Zangweni mountain and there was a small homestead at the base of it and they moved through and cleared it. They cleared it with um, a unit that needs to be mentioned at this point in time known um, Aces Burgers, Pete Aces Burgers. Now, he was a, a local farmer and there was 30 burgers that mobilised under him. And they had a vested interest because their farms were nearby. And um, so they, they they were the local guides and talent and they worked closely with Buller and, and Wood. And every time the Frontier Light Horse went out, Aces Burgers were there as the local guides. So they they pushed through and they, they cleared um, this small... Um, homestead or a moosey and um, there's a little bit of fighting a couple of men are, are, are wounded and um, a captain but Robert Barton at the Coldstream Guards 
um, receives a powder burn to the face at the time. He stuck his head into a cave and an Abacalusi fired around at him and, he, and the powder burns got him. And so Barton, I'll just mention at this point in time, he joined the, um, the regiment several months before and he was effectively the second in command of the Frontier Light Horse. And he was a special service officer serving out in South Africa. But we'll talk more, a little bit more about him later on and a bit more about his background. So after they cleared, cleared this village, they, they move on to some high ground on Sanguini Mountain and the um, this thousand strong Abakalusi present themselves. Bullard dismounts the men. They form a firing line. The horses are held in the rear and they keep the Abakalusi at bay. They keep putting a, a steady fire down on these guys. And then they start to present themselves in fighting just like the Zulus. So they, um, they put the um, horns of the buffalo out to encircle around the frontier light horse. And in, in total, there's like about 250 men in, in each horn encircling. And then at, at the chest, you've, you've got the remainder of the Abakalusi. The buller realises what's going on and he's smart enough and he was later praised for um, detecting this earlier on because not all men probably would have realised that what was going on and, and would have been surrounded. He calls it a day, mounts the men up, and then they start a fighting withdrawal, which goes over several miles back to the Wydumfalosi River. And it's a fighting withdrawal, but the takeaway for the day is they realise that firstly the Abakalusi are active, they're fighting just like the Zulus, and they mean business. They're up for a fight and they're not going to shy away. So this is starting to present a new threat up in the area. Now, the, one of the troopers at the end of this day, they fought this fighting withdrawal. And in the end, they were still pursued by probably about 100 of the fittest Abakalusi that followed them over several miles. And when they crossed the river, they were still engaging across the river. But a, a trooper wrote at the end of the day, the feeling of the men was trust God and sorry, fear God and trust your horse. So having a horse during those times when you're being pursued by an Abaclusi was, was vital. You did not want to be on foot. The very next day after getting back to camp, they report this to Wood. And from the 21st to the 24th of January, he takes out um, the 1st Battalion of the 13th Foot under Colonel Gilbert. He takes some guns with him. He takes Pete Ace's burgers and the Frontier Light Horse, and they go out looking for these guys. But it's not a rushed affair. They moved out slowly. They moved out in three separate groups. And they're back up to Zangwini where they, they encamp. And then they detect that off to the east, there's this mountainous feature known as Taban Mountain. It's like four or five um, kilometres long at at it's completely tabletop. At the widest point, it's about two kilometres wide. It's a very, very prominent feature. Um, it's used as a safe haven for cattle. There's a lot of homesteads around it. There's even some that were on, on top of it at that stage as well. And so they start to move out um, in towards that Laban mountain area. And I believe this is where they're going to have to engage the Abakalusi. But before they do that, on the night of 22nd of January, they could hear these guns firing off into the distance. 
And it was only later on that they realised that on the 20, they found out that 22nd of January, number three column was basically, as Zulu say, eaten up and it was completely taken out by um, Mater Mobile anyway, um, by the Zulus and 1,300 um, dead are left on the field. And what they could hear that night was Chelmsford's guns when they came back into the camp and they fired a couple of shots to clear the camp before they went in. That's what they could hear. But they didn't realise it. So 24th of January, Wood decides, okay, we're going to move into um, the vicinity of what was known as the lower plateau of Shaban Mountain with the 13th um, foot and the frontier light horse. And they begin to engage 4,000 Abakalusi that were then commanded under a Nkosi known as Masebi, who was actually a second cousin of um, Ketswaya. So th there's nothing really of note to say about this, this fight. Would loses a couple of rounds of the artillery, the infantry deploy, the Abakalusi are not going to close with them and they start to retire. And the frontier light horse deploy at one stage and they start pursuing the Abakalusi. And then just at after about four hours, I suppose when the, when the action's kind of culminating and I suppose it, it was naturally going to break off anyway, was the Abakalusi would probably ascend up to the safety of, of the mountain. They receive word um, that the defeat of number three column or the great Zulu victory at Izanwana on the 22nd of January, leaving 1,300 dead on the field, Wood immediately calls off the assault. This is a big game changer for him. He needs to find out what's happening. You know, does he keep operating? Um, does he need to lager up? What is the status of the invasion? Is it going ahead or is it not happening? So a lot of these questions are, are rattling around his head because um, it's also completely inconceivable to them in their minds at that time that 1,300 men could be killed. It was really shocking stuff. So the Frontier Light Horse are, are engaged and when they're called back, the men were, um, were performing well and in D Troop, um, this is when the regiment was at its peak in numbers. D Troop was commanded by a Captain Howard um, Brunker, who was at the 26 foot. He was a special service officer, just like Barton. He was a special service officer as well out in South Africa. So he's commanding this troop and he orders the men to cease fire, just as they're, they're closing with the Abercalusi and they're inflicting casualties on them. Now, this didn't go down well with the average colonial at the time one man yelled out to him you better go back to your mother and that was the comment that was made to him and um so the relationship Gosh. yeah it was and um now brunker was a, described as being a very very good staff officer who performed well out in um, Grickland west in 1878 and the operations that were going on out there um and he was sent up to number four column. And at the time, from memory, I can remember reading comments like, well, look, we're going to send you up Brunker. He's very, very good staff officer. He could be of use to Buller to command a squadron, but they were known as troops then. Um, so 
there was probably other things going on behind the scenes, but Brunker was taken away by the Frontier Light Horse, from the Frontier Light Horse. Um, the burgers didn't want to work with him and there were some issues with him working with a unit known as Woods Irregulars as well. So in the end, um, Wood sends him away from the column and he ends up going back to some staff work on the lines of communication. doesn't affect his career, though. He retires as a, as a colonel in 1892. It was just one of these glitches where the chemistry wasn't working between them. I said there's probably much more to it. It was even hinted in the media um, at the time that they they said they called it don't fireisms um, was quoted that that this doesn't really help when you're working with colonial troops. So that that's another story in itself. So Wood breaks off the engagement. He moves back to Kambula. Um, and decides to um, set up camp. Interesting enough, it was actually Captain Brunker who was out on a patrol one day with his men and he, he found this location and he thought, okay, Kambula, this would be a great place for a camp. And so he lagers up there. He doesn't know what to expect. And um, they start to receive more information about what had actually happened at, at Izanwana. But, but not long after, 11 days later, and on the 1st of February, Buller and the Frontier Light Horse, they conduct a raid. So despite having number three column being wiped out, um, number two column also lost a lot of men, was, was pretty much um, ineffective. Number one, one column, though, we should say, was under siege at Ashawi in Zululand. Number five column up to the north of Wood was relatively ineffective and definitely didn't have the bite that um, number four column was to display in, in the coming days. So they decide that they're going to raid the Eberkulasini stronghold, which is situated just um, northeast of Schlaban Mountain. And then basically it's, it's a location of a safe haven um, of 250, you know, tightly packed huts, and its first occupation goes back to the days of Sharka, and it's reported that there's a lot of cattle there. And the idea is let's go in and raid this place. It'll have a bit of shock and awe about it that, yeah, we're still active out here. Um, we, we've got a bit of reach. We, it's well behind um, well into um, in Zulu territory. So that's the, the intent, just get in and, and get out. So they really were sort of default aggressive, these guys, weren't they? They uh, they believed action be inaction. Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. And, I mean, there's some great descriptions about the night before that they, um, or the early morning when they're going out and Buller addresses um, the men. He's got eight officers he's picked. He's taken 106 of his front light horse and he's got 33 which was pretty much the complete contingent of Pete Ace's burgers. And under a, a, they said it was under a, um, a, with a lanterns in the background, Buller stood there and he explained them the importance and the danger of what they're about to do. They're basically going in behind lines. They're going to ride 30 miles there and back. They're going to strike this stronghold. They're going to get in and they're going to get out. And they said it was quite a dramatic um, looking scene that the men were bronzed, um, you know, from being out in the sun all the time. 
the lanterns silhouetted them. I said it was a very a dramatic sort of appearance, but they were very, very serious. And Wood's there listening to this, this quick brief that, that Buller gives to the troops. So, as I said, they, they get out, this cover this 30 miles. They always stop. You're reading in all the reports, they stop for a quick breakfast, which was a pit stop, off saddle briefly, rest the horses, get some coffee, if you're lucky enough to get some bread, get that into you. Or if you're lucky enough to have some meat, eat some meat as well. Um, give yourself a bit of energy, feed the horses, and then get back into the saddle again. I, I read on one time, one, one patrol, they're pretty much surviving just on coffee, of all things, um, but when, when rations were, were really thin. So they approach this stronghold. Buller leaves a troop sitting on a saddle, and the idea is he's going to protect his rear while the remainder of the men descend down into the, um, into the um, tightly packed huts, take what um, cattle they can. They, um, they come in, they burn the huts, and, you know, um, today we'd, we'd look at this as, you know, highly aggressive. Um, the huts didn't need to be burned, but that was the policy at the time, go in and destroy everything and um, try and dis dislodge the, um, the Abakalusi and the Zulu as, mu as much as they could, and taking away the cattle as well. I mean, that's basically their economy um, that they're taking there. So they leave a troop on the saddle. The men descend in. There's a little bit of a fight. There's no casualties on the frontier light horse side. I've, I've read that the minor casualties on the Abercalusi. They get in, get the cattle. They torch the place, and then they're straight out, and then they get back as quickly as they can back to Kambula. And so this is, you know, from 4 a.m. in the morning to 9 p.m. at night. Now, whilst this is, um, you know, not a devastating blow to the Zulus, what it does demonstrate is that number four columns out there, they're operational. They've got reach into operational reach into Zulu-held territory, and they've also got a bit of bite to them. You know, they, these guys are, are meaning business, and they're sitting out there. So, with a showery down on the coast under siege, it became important to keep this number four column active like this. Let's keep them in the field. Number five column, a little bit less so, but they they were. Um, active, but not as much as number four column. Now, from this point on, when you're reading through the newspapers, in particular the colonial papers at the time, you start to read these columns almost in every edition with Wood's column. So with the disaster at Isanwana and, of course, you know, the, the political embarrassment. So number four column from this point on really become the... Um, the, the men of the um, the day. And so for February and March, you know, we, we talked about we've got Pearson and his number number four column there besieged um, down in a showery. And Chelmsford's wanting to um, relieve this by about the first week in April. So in conference with Ward, he said, we need to keep your men active up in the northwest and, and draw away... Um, the attention from a showery and probably less as so, but it was probably perceived as a um, a threat at the time of, of the Zulu invasion of, of Natal, which, as we know, never eventuated, but it was also a, a consideration in their mind. So in this period, 
Embolini, he, he's not laying idle as well. And as you mentioned earlier on, he goes out and he um, he attacks the a company of the 80th Regiment, a convoy at Natombe Drift, and two officers and 75 men are killed, including um, 14 na natives. There's also a raid um, to the Hermansburg Mission Station. And it, it, at this stage, it's well and truly clear to Chelmsford and Wood that Embolini and the Abercalusi are very, very real and evolving threat in the area. And any subsequent movement, a general movement or a second invasion into Zululand, if they didn't neutralise the Abercalusi or dislodge them and force them out of the area, it would leave them behind um, their flank as they approached um, as they reinvaded into Zululand. Also at this time, you had Prince Hamu defected to the British and the frontier light horse were a part of um, re recovering him and bringing him back to Kambula. This was Etwayo's uh, half-brother, is that right? Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it was quite an amazing thing at the time. Um, they took great care and attention in, in recovering a, as many of him and his people as they could. And then, of course, they um, they served with the, the British on operations after that. Um, so they conduct a another reconnaissance of Schlaban Mountain, and that was on the 10th of February. And um, it became really clear that that mountain was definitely being used as a focal point for defence in the region by Embolini. They believed at that stage that there was possibly a thousand plus on the mountain summit with 2,000 cattle. The cattle figures have seen um, figures running up to 4,000. And I suppose if feasible at the time, they must have cattle off there into different areas for grazing, etc. So that figure naturally would um, fluctuate anyway. What they discovered during this reconnaissance is that at the western end, at a location that we'll talk about later on would be known as the Devil's Pass. It was very, very rocky. Um, and to ascend that, you're not going to get up that, you're not going to be able to assault it um, without suffering severe casualties. You're definitely not going to get horses up it. Um, so that's what they, they, they found out there, and they realised that the only way is to go up on the eastern side of, of that that mountain so that reconnaissance gleaned that that information they take that into consideration and at this stage um the frontier light horse i always mention you know they leave a troop behind um the adjutant um later become the paymaster of the frontier light horse was a 47 year old um Mary war veteran um captain howard hutton and during the Maori Wars, he'd actually was one period the commandant of the Auckland Cavalry Volunteers. And he'd said he had a bit of command experience himself. He came out, um, I think he was back in the UK and he, in, in Britain at the time, and he came out in, in 1878, um, possibly specifically serve in the, in the, um, the Ninth Frontier Wars. A lot of men came out to um, get a bit of um, operational experience. So he comes out, joins the Frontier Light Horse as a, um, a lieutenant and he's promoted captain and for a period he's the adjutant. But he never liked being left behind. And he, he recorded in his diary that the men have come back and they said that um, Glabana, as he, he wrote in his diary, 
um, is quite strongly held, but this time I mean to go with them because we're going to attack it. Um, so they, they knew that this, this was looming, um, but he was adamant that this time he was not going to miss out on going on a patrol. Um, so within number four column, because of the, the success of the Frontier Light Horse and Aces Burgers, there's a new development within number four column. Chelmsford decides that he's going to send more troops his way, in particular mounted troops. So the mounted troops of number four column expand and go beyond the frontier light horse, and essentially it becomes an oversized regiment. It's often referred to as a brigade, but it wasn't. It was, it was effectively a, an oversized regiment with um, two wings, and, and, and one wing was the frontier light horse, and with Buller taking command of the mounted troops, um, Barton, who is the 2RC, the same chap that had got the powder burns um, back in January, he's made the, the commanding officer of the Frontier Light Horse, still retains the rank of captain. And the other mounted elements come from such units as Baker's Horse, which was recruited down in the Eastern Cape, it was about 79 men strong, and that was commanded um, by a then a Lieutenant Wilson. They weren't up to full strength. Um, Colonel Baker himself doesn't join until later on. He raises and commanders it, and it, but a lot of the men are actually former Frontier Light Horsemen. So these men that were paid off back at the end of the Ninth Frontier War and also some that left when they, um, they departed the Transvaal, these men pretty much got back home to Port Elizabeth they were enticed again to um, get back in the saddle and they came up with um, Baker's horse. So you also had the border horse, which were recruited in the, in the Transvaal, and these were 50-odd men under Commandant um, Frederick Weatherly, who was a Canadian-born um, soldier that served with the British Army. I think he may have served from memory a bit of time with the Austrian army as well at one stage. But he, he'd served in the, the charge of the Light Brigade and he was an interesting character himself and you could do a whole podcast on him and his life and times up in, in the Transvaal. He'd been up in Pretoria for a number of years. Then you had Pete Ace's Burgers that we talked about 30-odd strong. Then you had the Transvaal Rangers um, that were raised and commanded by Commandant Peter Raff who was an individual that later died up in Matabele land in 1893 at the the end of the Matabele War. Um, So Barton himself, when he takes command of the Frontier Light Horse, at this stage he's 30 years of age. He'd served briefly in the Royal Navy, which in researching a number of these individuals, I found out, you know, he's not alone. Wood himself had served for a period in the Royal Navy, as did a number of other um, former officers was men officers serving in the Zulu War that um, they've got this strange pedigree that they they they're in the navy and then they um, springboard into the army. But he commissions into the Ninth Lancers from Sandhurst in eighteen sixty six. Then he exchanges into the Coldstream Guards in eighteen seventy three. He comes out to South Africa as a special service officer at the end of the Ninth Frontier War. And I'd have read a comment that he was not not permitted to serve in the Ninth Frontier. I don't know what that's all about. 
Um, maybe somebody else by, might know, but it was an interesting um, comment. So he joins the Frontier Light Horse um, just as they're leaving King Williamstown after they've refitted and they've got their numbers up to this beyond expectation number of 200 men. So he joins them and he's a part of the ride up into through the Transkei, East Griqualand, into Peter Maritzburg and Transvaal. So he does all that with them. So he's got to know the regiment well. Um, Buller and Wood obviously thought a lot of them, and needless to say, um, Chelmsford would have signed off on this as, as well. So he takes command of the regiment then. But it's interesting. I read a comment that Buller wrote at this stage, and he said, whilst I don't want to feel ungrateful at the courtesy that um, your Lord Chelmsford had bestowed upon him to take command of these mounted troops, he said, if ever someone who was more senior was to come out from Britain to take over command, I want to go back to the Frontier Light Horse. So he was grateful at giving the opportunity to take on this command. He'd done well to that point in time. But he also didn't want to lose the opportunity to return to the Frontier Light Horse. So that just goes to show what he thought of them, that this special relationship had developed with him at that stage. So we're now moving into... March, late March, of which you've got the, the actual Battle of Slaban Mountain, 28th of March, and then Kambula the following day um, at Woods Lager. And so it's on the, the 29th of March. But generally, these battles can be looked at separate actions. In, in re reality, that they're actually closely linked. It's, it's two extent two fights over a two different day period but however what it is generally forgotten about when people talk about the battle of Chlaban and Kambula is that it was much more for the men of the frontier light horse and that and, and the mounted men in January as the operations for them actually started on the 24th of March and only really concluded on the 29th of March but I'll explain what that was all about so during this period, they cover 200 kilometres and they fight these two beach battles. So they, they left Kambula camp on 24th of March and they head north and they conduct basically two days of sweeping operations through the Natombe Valley, trying to pick up in their dragnet any Abakalusi that, that is willing to offer any and, and it. They possibly covered more than 100 kilometres in those days, but I suppose when you're looking at patrolling schemes and making sure you're covering all the ground, there'd be a lot of moving backwards and forwards, but pretty much as the crow flies, it's, they definitely covered about 100 kilometres. And they arrived back at Kambula camp on the night of the 26th, so they've had a good couple of days in the saddle. They're worn out and they're exhausted because it's been relentless for them. Since the operation started in January, it's there's been hardly any respite. So that night they receive orders that there, there's going to be a reconnaissance in force to Schlaman Mountain. So the reconnaissance that they conducted earlier on, this is now going to be a, a real attempt to get onto the mountain, sweep away as much of the livestock that they could find on the mountain if they encounter the Abakalusi close with them and try and destroy them. So this is what they, they're trying to do. 
at 8 a.m. the following morning, which is generally a late start for the Frontier Light, or somebody must have hit snooze that day because generally I, I read that they they have a valley and they head out at 3, 4 in the morning, but it's a late start that morning. They've got 155 Frontier Light horse in three troops as part of a combined force of 1,320 men that weren't all mounted. There was a lot of it, probably about half was actually dismounted levies, which was a unit known as Woods Irregulars that were locally recruited up in that um, north north um, western part of um, Zululand. So they moved out under Buller, who commanded the a group that would assault the upper plateau. Then there was Colonel Russell, and he was tasked with the job with his mounted men to go and occupy the lower plateau while Wood, now Brigadier General, was in the field and he was going to operate between the two forces. So the Frontier Light Horse, they move out and they take their time. They're, they're trying to keep the horses well rested. And what they do is they, they move to the southern side of, of the mountain deliberately in full view. And there's a couple of shots that's fired, but it's all completely ineffective. So they're not really letting letting on their intentions at the time, but the Abakalusi pretty much understand that they're probably going to try and, and get up that mountain again. So they off-saddle in full view of the, um, the Abakalusi up on the mountain. They light some campfires and then... In the, in the darkness, very, very silently, they saddle up and it starts to rain. In actual fact, it's real heavy rain. And they silently move off with those fires, um, you know, hoping that they're going to stay lit in the rain. And the idea is they wanted to, the Abu Kalusi to them to think that that's where they're camping for the night. But in effect, they've moved off and they, they go into a, an assembly area. The horses remain saddled. The men stand by their horses and then there is this miserable um, pouring rain, you know, so you can just imagine the picture that the men are tired, they're standing there, they've got the, the rain pelting on them and they're about to launch an assault on this mountain. So you can imagine what was going through their minds at the time. So they they head off in darkness and they start to ascend up on the the um, eastern end of Slaban um, Manor, which was much easier to get the horses up. They're actually riding up to start off with. And then they start to come under a bit of sporadic fire. Then that fire intensifies as the other Kalusi have seen them. They dismount and they, they started to assault up the mountain. Well, one man said it took about 15 minute, minutes to really clear them, their way up the mountain, which is quite good going. But... At this point in time, you know, there's a lot of targets presented to them, you know, about 1,300 men plus the horses. Um, the Abu Kalusi's got a lot of opportunity to really try and stop them if they were organised, but clearly they weren't. And um, Buller pushes his men onto the mountain. And at this stage, they lose, um, there's two officers killed and one trooper is um, seriously wounded. The officer that was killed... Um, was pretty much earlier on in, in the initial firefight, and it was a Lieutenant George Williams. Now, interestingly enough, this 
This chap was a captain, serving captain in the West Yorkshire militia. He came out with a number of men from the West Yorkshire militia, or officers, I should say, to serve out with, with the army in Zululand. Not all of them got a um, got a, picked up an appointment. So Williams, with a number of others, actually joined the Frontier Light Horses Troopers. Williams's local appointment in the Frontier Light Horses Commission has never emerged in the local, so presumably in the local general orders that were published through the Natal Mercury, where they gazetted all these local appointments. He was killed before they, um, they got the paperwork in, but based on his um, captaincy in the West Yorkshire militia and obviously the talent that he must have displayed, Buller took him on as a... Um, as a troop commander, and he, he goes into the um, Upshalaban Mountain as an officer commanding this troop. Now, the other officer that was, um, was killed was um, Lieutenant Otto the Baron von Steitenkron. Great and, name. Yeah, and he is is an amazing character, and he really needs a lot of research. He's a difficult guy to get behind. The title of Baron, I've never really been able to to pin that down. But he was killed after as soon as they got on the mountain and he was peering over the edge because the Abacalusi had moved off to the side as soon as they got on. They, they got into all these caves and crevices on the side of the mountain and they were popping up and putting a few um, shots at the um, at Buller's men as they, they got on there. And so the Baron had stuck his head over the edge and he was shot and killed. Um, but his background was he'd served with the in the Austro-Prussian War in 1866. Then he came out to the Transvaal, and there was a, a lot of men with um, Austrian, um, German backgrounds that came out to the Transvaal, and they served for the Transvaal government during the um, their war against Sekakuni. And then he comes on and joins the Frontier Light Horse, but. He was well thought of and, and to, to join the Frontier Light Horse, Carrington and, and Buller signed off on him, so he, he must have been deemed as suitable. He did get himself into an embarrassing moment um, about a month earlier when he, he got the patrol lost one night, and I think it was at Lunenburg they came in and they startled Lunenburg and the garrison there had to stand too. But um, So the, the poor old Baron was... Um, a little bit embarrassed about that, but tragically he's, he's killed. And he's also, he was the only other remaining officer in C Troop, um, Williams being the commander of C Troop. Then Archibald Stewart, a trooper, described as being an Australian Scot, um, was seriously wounded. He was also a C Troop man, and he's dragged up onto the mountain and the men um, carried him in a blanket at that stage. It was felt that he was not going to survive, but he ends up lingering for some time and we'll, we'll get back to him a bit later. So they'd secured the plateau. Um, a trooper, the, the Frontier Light Horse, was guarding the gateway to that access point of the mountain. All the other mounted troops spread out and started to move to key positions while Woods Irregulars are on foot and they're sweeping the cattle. And the idea was that they would sweep the cattle across to the western side where they believed they could at least get the cattle down there. 
but they'd realised that you couldn't get horses, mounted men couldn't operate down there. That was the belief at the time. So they they clear the livestock. The weather is clearing and the day is starting to look pretty good. They find some huts on the mountain that they torch these and, of course, there's these plumes of smoke start arising that could be seen for miles away. But what they didn't realise at the time is that Russo detected them um, at nine o'clock, approximately nine o'clock. Um, he's on the lower plateau. He's secured his objective. And his men are looking off into the distance. About five miles away, they could see what appeared to be at the, at the time a, a dark cloud moving across the plain towards Schlaban Mountain, but it wasn't a cloud. It was actually 17,000 Zulus, the same force that had fought at Izanwana, but that numbered 20,000 back then. So this is a sizable Zulu army presenting itself. And they're moving from the vicinity of an area called the Lion's Neck, of which, interestingly enough, um, in the orders, Buller had been instructed that he was to send out a patrol to, to conduct a reconnaissance out there towards um, Lion's Neck to see what's there. Now, there's no evidence of that patrol occurring, but definitely um, Captain Dennison, who was one of Weatherly's um, border horse officers and a, a colonial, a vast experience. I think he first served back in the Basuto War in, in 1865, um, a man of vast experience. He went out there. And he detected the army, and he actually yeah. Didn't he sneak up on them at night and uh, spot them? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Quite daring in itself, really. And of course, he gets back to Wood and explains this to Wood, and Wood sort of brushes it aside. No, it's not plausible, which is strange because Wood was told, firstly, to you know he needed to remain active. He needed to draw the Zulus away from Ashawi. And there was also intelligence that the, that army was on the move and he knew about this. So whether he was thinking it was implausible, the sense that they could be so close so soon, it's, a, it's another discussion. But so this, what's emerging to be a, a successful operation um, is starting to fall apart. Now, now Blood Buller is blissfully up on the mountain, oblivious to this. Um, would is made aware of it and he's not really believing it. Russell's a bit perplexed and he tries to get a message sent up that through that Devil's Pass area. And at 10.30, Buller decides, okay, we've achieved what we wanted to achieve. Um, let's start to get off this mountain and, and um, head, head back to Kambula. So he orders Sea Troop, which he was temporarily commanded at one stage by that adjutant, um, Captain Hutton. But then what he decides to do is he says to um, Barton, you take Sea Troop back, bearing in mind Barton's commanding the Frontier Light Horse, you just take Sea Troop back and take the body of Williams back with you. Because Williams's body was further back down the mountain. Take that back and, um, and bury it at, at Kambula and we'll follow as such, and um, so Buller was pretty much going to take the rest of the Frontier Light Horse and all the other mounted men. There was a confusion about the order, and remember I mentioned that A troop 
was commanding the um, access point to the mountain, you know, right on the lip. They mount up and abandon that position and start to move westward over the mountain to join Buller, and then Buller sees them, like, what are you doing here? And they realise the mistake. They gallop back, but it's too late. The Abakalusi have also seen the Zulu army moving up to support them. They've now got invigorated confidence. There's about 3,000 of them in the area. And so they start to contest this access point. They realise now that they're going to cut off their access. And this this is a a smart move on behalf of Mbellini. And it's too late. A troop can't regain that that lost um, neck there that they were holding, that lip, the access point to the, the mountain. So Buller then finds out about the Zulu army, and this is like an 11 o'clock, and this is when there's absolute calamity. What are we going to do? So the only way they're going to get up the mountains is that they're going to have to go west. The Abakalusi are now closing in, and there's firefights starting to break out everywhere, and Buller realises, but we need to cut our losses, hang the cattle. If they get away, they get away, you know, with woods irregulars, and I need to get these men off the mountain quickly before that army closes with me and surrounds me and leaves me trapped up on this mountain. So, so it's essentially become just a case of trying to survive now. There's no other, there's, there's no, there's nothing else except survival at this point. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's it. And, you know, to keep any cohesion together um, was going to be difficult amongst panicked men. You know, bearing in mind um, these all these different mounted troops are at various degrees of experience, dedication, I suppose, as well. So you're going to get some some men they are going to create a bit of panic. And they push across to that um, what was deemed as an impassable, um, inaccessible pass, um, known as the Devil's Pass. Basically, it's 300 feet long. It's just covered in massive rocks. I mean, to go and you can't even, walking it's difficult. It really is hard to get down that on foot. You've got to watch, really watch your footing. Now, at the time, quite possibly, there could have been a lot more soil around it, that erosion, what we see today. It probably presented itself a little bit different. But, however, it was deemed impassable by mounted troops. So they amassed there 400-odd mounted troops, um, they put in a there's a rear guard blazing away at the Abakalusi and they start to push the men down. Bullets saying, just get down it. And as they're going down, horses are losing their footing and rolling. Um, Captain Cecil Darcy, one of the um, troop commanders, we'll talk about a bit later on. He even says that as he comes down, a rock comes down and tears the leg off his horse. You know, so this is really, really, really bad situation that they're in. The Abakalusi are closing with them. And they've first of all, they've got a wall that needs to be broken down before they can get down onto this neck, which joins the upper plateau with the lower plateau. And at this stage, Russell's cleared off, by the way. So they've got no mutual support down there. So the Abakalusi are moving around them there as well. And as they're descending, it's 
a crush. I mean, the best way to describe it for people to visualise it, maybe you'll put the photograph up on the, the video, but it's basically a funnel that they're forced down and that you're coming in the wide end of the funnel where the, the troops are amassing, then you're descending down this very, very narrow um, rocky descent. And it's here that they sustain a lot of casualties. And at the base of it, the Abercalusi are closing, the Zulus are, are moving in as well, the, this 17,000 strong army. And they just start to, to close with these men. And, um, you know, here they are with an, an equa. I mean, you don't want to be on the business end of that. And there's even descriptions of the men being on their horses and the Abercalusi coming under the horses and, and stabbing them you know, from under the horses. They've also got the knob carry, which is quite heavy, and just a blow from this is enough to kill you. So with the men are presenting... Those, those listening to the audio-only version, Cam's just uh, lifted them up to show me on the camera, and quite vicious-looking weapons. I, I pity any burglar who comes to Cam's house. <laughs> good, good point, actually. Um, Yes, so, you know, the, the, the scene is just absolute pandemonium. But, but Buller in his typical leadership style and the other officers at the Frontier Light Horse and, and the other mounted regiments are trying to hold everybody together as well. But there was a fundamental mistake made that when the, the rear guard at the top was putting this fire down and, and keeping the Abercalusi away for some time, when they, more of them presented, they actually thought it was Woods Irregulars and they ceased fire, but it was too late. The Abercalusi jumped on that and they started to rout the rear guard. And there, there was a, a lot of men killed, killed um, in the rear guard. And Buller even said in his report, oh, where's the effect, my stupid rear guard? Um, it basically left the gate open for them. And that's when the crush really happened down this descent. So they, they move down the Devil's Pass. They get themselves into some semblance of order, but it's every man for himself. I mean, the descriptions of the retreat back to Kambula camp, there's men operating as individuals, section, you know, half sections, four men, eight men, and then up to troop size. But it, it's basically, it's, it's a route, and it takes the men hours to get back to Kambula camp. Buller had sent um, a trooper, um, Robert Brown, back ahead and um, to, to get word back to um, the camp at Kambula that this isn't happening just in case the, the Zulu army was heading there. And they, they were as well. That was their, their intention was that army was to come up to um, close with Woods number four column at Kambula. But so then we talked about Barton and his sea troop. So as they descended, they're pretty much decimated. They join up with the border horse. We're actually about to ascend um, the mountain and they try and break away. And of the men that went with him from C Troop, I mean, 18, are, um, including Barton himself, are killed. And of the, um, the Frontier Light Horse contingent that, that went by that route, only Regimental Sergeant Major Bernard Winterfelt 
and six men managed to get back to um, Cambula camp that night, which they got in at, at eight o'clock. Um, and they had quite a, quite a grueling experience, probably worse than what was happening at the Devil's Pass. But there's a lot of acts of gallantry. Um, you can imagine in this, this fighting, um, you know, there's absolute terror going on. Trooper Griggs of the Frontier Light Horse commits suicide. It, it's unknown that he was whether he was wounded or not, but Hutton records that in his diary that uh, Griggs had um, shot himself and presumably he you know, obviously thought he's going to be overrun here and he'd rather kill himself than be stabbed within a seg eye. Doesn't uh, Mossop yeah. mention something similar as well? Is that about the same guy or a different guy, do you know? It could be the same guy or, um, or it could be another person in, in completely um, separate. But Griggs is the only one that I've seen named. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... It's, a, it's a, a harsh reality of the seriousness of the situation of the, the picture of what we, would have unraveled there. You know, so, so Buller, um, he was himself racing around and picking men up and um, he subsequently awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions that day. Um, Captain Cecil Darcy, who we mentioned earlier on, he, at one stage even Buller had picked him up Darcy was picked up by four different people. <laughs> he was picked up, then he he's taken to a, a place of safety, and then he himself he's trying to, you know, get take control of the men and keep them together as a, a cohesive fighting group. Um, and then you know it gets hot again, and he has to be um, picked up and and moved out. So this constant picking up of um, dehorsed men it, it was very much the order of the day and. The bulk of the acts of gallantry are, you know, the Victoria Crosses um, and a couple of distinguished conduct medals are sent around this kind of behaviour um, that day. And this is the way that the men operated. They did the best they could to pick up a um, dehorsed comrade. Um, so, you know, we've got Buller picks up his Victoria Cross, um, Knox Leap, who was um, an Imperial officer, um, serving with Wood, Woods Irregulars, and he picks up uh, Lieutenant Smith, uh, the Frontier Light Horse, and he picks up the Victoria Cross. And the two distinguished conduct medals to the Frontier Light Horse go to a William Vinicom and Robert Brown. So Robert Brown was an Englishman that was um, basically Buller's officer servant and had, had been with him for some time, um, but he, he was a serving soldier in the Frontier Light Horse. Um, Vinicom was a local lad by birth. I think he was about 21 years of age at that stage. But but tragically, both men died very young. I mean, Vinicom died um, in a mine shaft accident in 1889. Bobby Brown um, drowned in Yorkshire in July 1881. Oh, no. Yeah, so it's quite sad. And you look through the lives of all the men in the Frontier Light Horse and you, you see all these you know, men going for years and others die prematurely. Um, but for two DCM winners, obviously quite brave men, quite premature and sad ends to them. Yeah. So for at the end of the day, I mean, this is a real severe blow. This is three officers and 26 men are, um, killed in the frontier light horses, two wounded, of which C troop take the brunt of them. 
So, um, and of course, they get back to camp that night. Um, Buller actually goes out himself to try and um, locate as many men as he could. Oh, don't worry. I'm just interrupting for a few seconds while I enjoy the wonderful South African sunshine. I wondered if you knew I was now a qualified tour guide for the most important battlefields in South Africa. That includes Isandwana, Rorkstrift, Spionkop, Majuba and dozens of others. You didn't know, but now you do. I'm hoping to start running bespoke tours from 2023. So if you think you'd be interested, then head on over to redcoathistory.com and sign up for my mailing list where you'll get a monthly newsletter and a free copy of my book on the Anglo-Zulu War. Anyway, enough of my rude interruption. You can get back to the story. I'm getting back to my sunbathing. So the men are pretty dejected at this stage and it rains that night, but the men are exhausted. Um, one individual said he just fell asleep in the rain. He'd replenished his um, bandolier with ammunition and just fell asleep, rain or not. He, he was sleeping. And the following morning, you know, they've... They, um, they wake up at Ravelli. Um, I mentioned earlier on that bringing in firewood was relentless and regardless of the, day, the previous day's events, this didn't stop the firewood party going out. Wood also knew that it was very re real um, expectation that this um, 17,000 strong Zulu army with 3,000 Abakalusi on top were uh, more than likely going to present themselves that day. So he sends out patrols. So there's not much rest for many men at the Frontier Light Horse and the other mounted troops when Raf's men go out. Captain Blaine of the Frontier Light Horse goes out. Um, RSM Winterfeld, who had arrived back in late that night, he's sent out with a patrol also. So when you, you as far as casualties go, this is probably the since his Amwana, they've the column has lost 15 officers and at least 179 men killed, including men from Woods Irregulars. But those casualty figures, I personally believe, are much more in the fact that many men of Woods Irregulars, the, the, the locals that are recruited, have deserted. And it was really unknown how many of them were killed. So that number is... I believe it is lower than what it what it really was. So stacked up against the, the 1300 at um, Izanwana, this is, as far as casualties go, the second worst day for um, Chelmsford's army. And I suppose close behind that was Ntombe Drift. Mm, I think it was about 60-odd killed at Ntombe Drift off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, some, something like that in, in that vicinity. So it's still quite a shock. Um now, of course, getting word back to Chelmsford about this is going to take about a day or so to get that through. Um, so this is the, ninth, the, the morning of the 29th. The men are still trying to comprehend just what happened. And, and Buller, incidentally, wrote about the Frontier Light Horse at that time, despite the day's events and the adversity that they faced, they actually performed well. He believed he was happy with the way that they managed to extract themselves and get out of that sticky situation. And as we said earlier on, you know, um, fear God and trust your horse. Well, this was very much one of those days, you know, where 
that these men relied on their horses to escape. So that day, um, they're waking up, their commanding officer is missing, really believe that he was dead. Um, I think Winterfelt alluded to the fact that he'd seen him go down, that it was unlikely that he was, he was going to emerge. But there were rumours going around for days after that Barton was sort of still out there somewhere, um, but, it, but it wasn't a fact. So who's going to take command of the, the Frontier Light Horse? The Captain Hutton, um, I don't, I'm not sure whether he is a consideration, but they appoint um, Captain Cecil Darcy to assume temporary command of the Frontier Light Horse, but it's confirmed pretty much soon after. And Dar Darcy was actually um, given the rank of Commandant, being a local, whereas Buller and Barton were Imperial officers and they were not given that rank. They retained their Imperial rank. So Darcy was effective a, a captain, but he was um, also appointed Commandant as commanding officer of the, the Frontier Light Horse. And he'd performed well. He'd, um, he did well the day before, um, despite losing his horse. And I think he even lost his carbine at one stage. He had to struggle to get that out of the saddle. Um, he even had a, a grab for his saddle at the, the Devil's Pass. And I think he abandoned it in the end. So he'd performed well. Um, it was even suggested that he, he should have um, been awarded the Victoria Cross um, for his actions the day before, but it wasn't to be. It happens later on, though. So a little bit about Darcy. He's a New Zealander. His father had been serving in the British Army out there, and the family um, move out to um, the Eastern Cape when he's about nine years of age. And he's 28 when he takes command of the Frontier Light Horse. Um, he'd been in the civil service as a clerk. He'd Going through the, the civil service list at the time, he moves from sort of one magisterial district to another and he's serving as a clerk. And when the Ninth, Ninth Frontier War breaks out, he, he joins the Albany um, Mounted Volunteers, which is a locally raised regiment. Um, it was raised under a, a chap by the name of Minto, who when one day when we talk about the um, Morosis Mountain um, is heavily mentioned in, in that fight, but not in a good light, unfortunately. So um, he joins the Albany Mounted Volunteers. He's a sergeant um, in, a, in a couple of months, and then he's a troop sergeant major. When he gets up to December of 1877, and then he's um, identified as a, a candidate for a commission in the Frontier Light Horse, and Carrington takes him on. And then he, he's with the regiment, you know, he's basically a foundation member of the regiment, so he's been with them for the whole Ninth Frontier War, and he's been up in the um, the Transvaal, and to date he's been with them on everything they've done in the field. So he's deemed as being the, the best candidate for the job. Buller and Wood obviously thought a lot of him, and like I mentioned in the case of Bart, needless to say, um, Lord Chelmsford would have needed to have signed off on him at some stage as well. So there's a lot of confidence in him and um, the men obviously thought a lot of him as well. So this is on the morning of the 29th and it's about 1.30 in the afternoon when 
the right horn of the Zulu army appears to the north of the Lager. And Wood's got about 2,000 British in there and he's got six guns there. And ahead of this right horn is Sergeant Major Winterfelt, the chap that was with Sea um, Troop the day before and he's out with a patrol himself. And he comes galloping in just ahead of this right horn. So Winterfeld's had an interesting couple of days. Um, and, he, and he rides into the lager and it's discussed about, okay, what are we going to do? And um, like what they did back in um, Quintana, you know, in, in February 1878, it's decided that the mounted troops would go out with a heavy contingent of the frontier light horse and they're going to go to this right horn to prematurely um, commit themselves to battle. And this is what they do. So they they open the lager up, they descend out onto the, um, the open field and they start to engage the right horn and they, they take the bait and there's a fighting withdrawal all the way through. Now, as soon as the, the right horn comes under effective fire from um, Wood's infantry of the 90th foot, you know, they're basically pinned down and they don't move all day for the remainder of the day. They remain checked, this right horn. And essentially, after a number of a series of attacks and attempts to close with the lager and um, the Zulu, Zulu army is pretty much um, defeated by 5.30 and it's, and it's all over. So at this point in time, the, um, the mounted men are ordered by Buller to, to mount up. And, um, and as, as he even said in his report, he said it, at that stage, about 5.30, it was a matter of um, it was stand to your horses, mounted men, we are up and at them. And then they pursued the, um, the Zulus right into the night. Now, the, the, the men of the frontier light horse, I mean, Captain Darcy and Captain Blaine in particular, personally wrote about the, the bravery of the Zulu army, how they just kept rushing and rushing. I mean, Darcy wrote, they fought well and kept rushing in a most plucky way, but I knew what the result must be. But Blaine, he wrote, wrote to his father and said it was just truly amazing, the, the bravery of these men until and then they called it off and retired. And But for the frontier light horse and the remainder of the mounted men, they hadn't forgotten what had happened the day before. And Hutton wrote in his diary that the, um, as the Frontier Light Horse pursued, and Hutton was a part of that, that men were calling out, remember yesterday. They picked up the, the Zulu Asegais, according to Hutton, and they were using them like swords with great effect in his so words. So essentially sort of swinging them like you would a sabre. Yeah, I mean, that's the impression you get from the, the diary, and they just pursue them as far as they could until they, they just call it off and it's well into the the, um, the night time and they retire back to the um, back to the lager. So the Zulus lose about a thousand killed um, in the the um, frontier light horse. They have two killed, two wounded. But incredibly enough, it's um, I noticed in researching the men that the bulk of the frontier light horse casualties were ex-Navy men, whether they're Royal Navy or Merchant Navy guys or Maritime Marine guys, but they called them back at the time. It was just an interesting observation. Clearly um, not so, very good on horseback. 
no, no, there's something going on there. It was like, I thought, wow, what's what's happening here with these guys? Um, but, you know, so they, they got off um, very lightly, the Frontier Light Horse, that day. And, and, of course, with this great disaster the day before, now they've got this victory against the Zulus, you know, and um, so for when Wood's writing up his report, this is great news for Chelmsford, and this is a turning point in the war, Kambula. But when you, you look about it from the frontier light horses said earlier on, this is the end of a six-day epic where they've been in the saddle, they've had two pitch battles to fight, they've lost a lot of men, they've obviously a, a lot of emotion, they're operating on light scales, limited food, the horses were starting to get knocked up as well. So this was tough stuff. Over six days, they, they endured this, and it was a real test. I mean, one of Buller's biographers said that it was only a guy like Buller that could have held the men together in such trying circumstances. It really was something else, and it's often overlooked. As I mentioned earlier on, you know, Kambula and Taban are looked upon as two separate battles, but for the men of the Frontier Light Horse, it was the end of a six-day operation pretty much covering vast distance, 200 miles or 200 kilometres at least, and two significant battles. Wow. Well, well, I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic description of that, that intense period in their history. And now with the turning point of the war after Kambula and, and as we move towards the second invasion of Zululand, did they still retain uh, that, that uh, high level of operational tempo or did things calm down a bit for them? There was momentarily a rest after, um, after these two actions in this six-day period. They did have to patrol. Um, and then, of course, you, you know, we've got a showies relieved just a couple of weeks later, early April, and um, the second invasion's coming on, as you, as you alluded to. So what happened is number four column was retitled the flying column. They keep... Um, Buller and Wood together as an independent command. Um, there was always a fear in um, Buller's mind that he might be taken and put under the command of somebody else, um, which would have destroyed that chemistry. And, and Chelmsford recognised this. And even when Wolseley comes out later, he identifies that back in, in Great Britain, they understood this as well, that there was something going on with these guys and the way that they're operating. And they were in the limelight quite a lot. Um, but, yeah, the patrolling goes on. There's a lot of real long-range long stuff. And it's pretty much patrolling with the objective of, um, once again, identifying ground that could be used for the wheeled transport. So as the, the second invasion occurs, that they, um, the wheeled transport have got routes that are, it's going to not impede the columns. They're not going to get stuck. They're not going to have protracted convoys going over miles because of transport stuck, et cetera. They'd also be identifying areas where they could lager up. And also um, with this second invasion, as you know, they established a number of forts all the way along, so they protected their lines of communication. They have There's one, one patrol of note, um, which is out to Zangeni, um, which is on the 5th of June, and that was a reconnaissance in force along with the um, the regular cavalry then, I think 17th Lancers and the King's Dragoon Guards were out there with them 
at that stage. And that in that erupts into a, a bit of a heated firefight. Buller decides to call it off that, you know, this is a waste of time, let's withdraw. But the, um, the cavalry are, are committed. And, and later on when Wolseley examines it, he said it was an idiotic manoeuvre by sending the, the, 17th, the 17th Lancers in there. Now, which Presumably that was just because they were new boys trying to make a name for themselves, was it? They'd just arrived. Yeah, something like that. You probably wanted to, you know, yeah, get a bit of glory. But I, I agree with um, Wolseley's assessment. I mean, there was there was no point protracting that fight. Um, they went in there, they destroyed some huts, and um, they identified where the enemy was, and that's it. Let's retire and, and report this and um, to Wood and Chelmsford. And then, you know, when they, heading up to the culmination point of the war, you know, 4th of July, Alundi's fought. But the day prior to that, um, the flying column is active. They're out there with Chelmsford's um, army that that invades. I think Ian Knight calls it a juggernaut, and that describes it massive army that, that moves into Zulu land and is heading straight for Adundi to essentially close and destroy the Zulu army. Now, the day prior, Buller's takes takes some of his, um, his mounted men and he crosses the White Umfalosi River and they're cantering in towards um, Alundi itself and they're trying to understand what the Zulu dispositions are, where, how many of these um, massive homesteads and kraals are occupied. Do they see the Zulu army? What's there? And to identify an area where um, Chelmsford can fight this fight. Where where is he actually going to have the fight? To identify that ground. And as they're approaching, Buller sort of detects that there's something not right here. And so he orders the mounted men to halt and loose a round of. Um, from the saddle. And so they they stop, they fire off a volley. And then of course he was right. All of a sudden the Zulus emerge and they're, they're almost all around them. They close really quickly. And as they're extracting themselves and they're doing one of these classic fighting withdrawals, there's a number of casualties. I think for the day it ends up with three killed and four wounded, but there's a number of men dehorsed and then Cecil Darcy goes out and he attempts but, but fails to pick up a, a trooper, but he's almost surrounded and, and has to extract himself and fight his way out of um, there's been these Zulus that are surrounding him. Then you've got um, Sergeant, Sergeant Edmund O'Toole of the Frontier Light Horse, and he's out there with, um, with Beresford, a, um, an Imperial officer that's serving with, with the flying column. And these men are all trying to pick up or succeed in picking up dehorsed men. And essentially it results in Darcy being awarded the Victoria Cross. Um, we get Beresford gets a Victoria Cross, but only accepts it if O'Toole, who was with him, gets a Victoria Cross as well. So that was, in the, in the terms of the Frontier Light Horse, quite a significant day for him as far as um, recognition of their... Um, the various acts of gallantry that are performed, I'm sorry, performed by the, the the men in the regiment. But needless to say, over the 
the previous months, there would have been many acts of bravery that um, go unrecognised. And then the next, they um, they cross over with the army, um, across, you know, over the white Umfalosi. It's this massive um, moving lager. And like what they've done previously at Kambula, the mounted men are sent out to to goad the Zulu army, it works again, and the Zulu army attacks this massive lager and they're, de they're decimated and the fight only lasts about three quarters of an hour and fundamentally that ends the war. Um, for the Frontier Light Horse, it, it's a bit of an anti-climax. They ride back across the river, they get back up into the um where the wheeled transport is lagered there's a huge pot of tea waiting for them and almost straight away the men the officers in particular start to worry that they're not going to be involved with the um the following operations and they need because when Ketsreo need, needed to be um to be found and, and brought in and they were all concerned that very day that they were not going to be a part of that about you know what became sort of known as a pursuit of the king, and they weren't. Um, so earlier on, there'd obviously been some kind of discussion about the future of the frontier light horse at that stage. Um, I mean, Chops Mossop in his book, he, he pretty much writes that the regiment was broken up that day, but in actual fact, they weren't. Um, so from that point on, they 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 moved back to Ladysmith, um, and just prior to that. Um, Buller and Wood, who are mentally exhausted from the, their experiences in Zululand, are, are permitted to leave almost straight away, go back home to Britain and have a rest. And at this stage, they, they encounter Wolseley, who was sent out to take command from Lord Chelmsford. Now, the three of them knew each other well, and um, Wolseley really wanted to detain, retain both of these men um, in South Africa was there. They knew that they had to go up and deal with Sekakuni and plus there were these pacification operations that were going to occur in, in Zululand. But he, he actually commented to them, he said, listen, you deserve the opportunity to go home and deserve a well-earned rest. And when you get back, you're going to be um, well-received because you're very much the heroes of the war, which was an interesting comment from Wolseley. Yeah, especially as he generally didn't like many people. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. So many he, he picks this up and um, and off they go. So the frontier light horse under Darcy end up over in Ladysmith, and um, their their future is undecided. They get a little bit out of hand. The um, in particular, they say the officers are always in the the local pub getting drunk, and things are starting to fall apart. Um, for the frontier light horse, and then it's decided then that um, they're going to move them um, up to um, up to the Transvaal. Um, but at, at that that stage, um, I don't know whether you want me to talk about now what happens with the frontier light horse from that point on. Yeah, I yeah, think while, while we're on it, could you just give us the? Because I'm aware we've been going two hours. Could you just give us the brief description of what happened next in terms of them being disbanded and how the men felt about that? Yeah. Okay. So um, what happens next is 
the imperial authorities decide that, yeah, we're going to retain them, but we're going to keep 100 hand-picked men. So of the regiment, they weed out all the men that they didn't feel were suitable or those men that wanted to leave. And they're paid off and they received about a, a month's pay. Then they head up north with Wolseley, um, where the operations against Sekakuni are going to um, kick in again, and this is for the second Anglo-Bapeti War. But however, the frontier light horse weren't a part of it because at the same time, whilst Wolsey didn't believe it then at the time, it felt that the Transvaal Boers were going to go into rebellion. So they stay at Middleburg. And one man at least that we know of, um, Captain Ewan Christian, who is a, a formerly an officer in the 20-foot, he went out as a staff officer around with Wolsey and he took place in the, um, took part, I should say, in the final battle there against Sekakuni fighting copy on um, 28th of November, 1879. Um, and he was mentioned in dispatches there. So from that point on, it is decided that the regiment is going to be disbanded. I, I gather that Wolseley didn't really like Darcy. When he was awarded him, physically awarded with the Victoria Cross in Pretoria, he pretty much said, and he, he does say in his diary, that it was really a, not a very deserving VC as the man that he tried to save um, didn't, he, he died, he didn't save him. Um, so he, and then he also made a comment there at a dinner one night, and very, you know, we all know that Wolves in his diary is very critical. He said that Darcy was continually talking about himself and was talking like he's the only person that's ever been under fire. And, you know, Wolsey was saying he hadn't realised that we'd all been under fire, we'd all been through trying um, experiences. I gather that he he didn't like him and possibly that had something to do with the decision to take them back to Peter Maritzburg and disband them. So because of that personal animosity, that's that's sad for the rest of the guys. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's a possibility when you, you look into, they decide that they're going to keep them. They perform well, but when you read into Wolsey's letters, you think, okay, he, he really doesn't like him here. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I kind of get that. I don't know, you know, I'm sure you experienced this where, you, you know, we, we've all been in a few spicy situations and there'll be some new guy who comes along and starts talking to you like you, you've never been there and uh, they, they, they are a bit annoying. So I guess I can understand Wolseley's perspective a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you seem quite, quite annoyed by, by him at the dinner that night. But also um, Hutton, you know, we've talked about a little bit. He, he wrote in his diary that, he decided he was going to leave the front Elite horse then. And he said, whilst Darcy was very polite and respectful with him, he was decided he was going to leave the regiment. This is Hutton at that stage because he felt that Darcy didn't have a hold on the men. Now the Buller was out of the picture. So, you know, so Buller was very much keeping them together, although he wasn't directly their commanding officer. He was commanding the mounted troops. Um, so Buller going also, things started to fall apart as well. And that was, there's another part of that, a little bit more evidence coming from um, from Hutton himself. So they're back in Peter Marricksburg and their, their breakup is really tragic. They come into town and there's 
like there's no respect, there's no pomp and pageantry, there's no addresses and well done. It's pretty much they come into town. Captain Christian at that stage, um, he's left in, in charge. Darcy pushes on down to down to Durban later on pretty quickly, um, as do a few of the other officers, and they're just abruptly broken up. And the men were really annoyed because they got less than a month's pay. Now, the men, in their words, the rotters of the regiment that were paid off and given a full month's salary because they were ineffective, they were paid off. You know, they've received this, this um, the men that were the cream of the cream were now being paid off with less than a couple of weeks' pay. The men were really annoyed at that. I can't blame them. Yeah, I guess it's a bit like if you've worked really hard for a company and you get the same or less redundancy pay than the guy who's only been there a short time and didn't do a very good job. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it, and it was it was really sad. I mean, it, it, they covered it in the Natal Mercury at the time. They talked about this and, you know, they lobbied and said, you know, we shouldn't be deserved. We don't deserve to be treated like this. And all we've done in Southern Africa, you know, they really felt that it was atrocious behaviour. Seems a sad end to a great unit. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But and the, the men, a lot of men go on to greater things. At, at the time, though, um, Chelmsford wrote, he said that the Cape Mounted Rifles um, down in the Cape, they needed needed um, a new stamp of men, and he identified out of all the regiments, he said that many men of the 17th Lancers and the Frontier Light Horse should be deemed as ideal recruits for the Cape Mounted Rifles. And many of them them do go on. And there's Darcy goes down himself and um, picks up an appointment with the Cape Mounted Rifles because Carrington goes down to take command of a wing. And that's a whole story in itself. Captain Blaine, um, he goes down and um, he picks up a troop in the, the Cape Mounted Rifles, as do many other Zulu War veterans, some officers from the um, Natal Native Contingent, um, Shervington's one of one of note, um, you know, who was, you know, often said that he should have picked up a VC for his actions out of the Shawi. He, he goes on to the Cape Mounted Rifles and does very well. And, and a lot of the men do, you know, they find their way into the, um, the CMR because it, it's a permanent job. Um, there's still a lot of soldiering to be had in Southern Africa, but one of the Frontier Light Horse officers, um, Lieutenant Harry Hughes, he's the, the son of um, Sir Alfred Hughes back in Britain, and he himself was a former militia officer. He comes out to South Africa. He first came out to South Africa and, and served as an irregular um, as in the ranks um, in Griqualand um, West in 1878. And um, so he goes into the the Cape Mounted Rifles as a um, second-class private, as, a, as they were known then, and as did many gentlemen rankers. The, the CMR was riddled with them. Many men came out. They were um, sons of peerage, et cetera, and they come out and they joined the CMR and hoped to, to um, have a career in the CMR, at least a gateway to something better in South Africa. But Hughes himself... Um, rises to a sergeant, he's a signal sergeant, actually, and 
wrote, wrote away to his father at one stage and, and they must have known each other and said, hey, your son's doing really well. And as soon as a commission comes up, you know, basically he's going to get it. So he's doing quite well. Then it all falls apart and he's tried by a, um, a field general court-martial in the field. And I'll read this out to you. For, on two accounts, the first account, threatening to shoot with his revolver anyone who touched him and striking Private Bell whilst assisting to take away his revolver. And the second account, aiding and abetting Sergeant Gould and Munford to fight with revolvers. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite, 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 quite incredible. The day in the, in the Cape archives when I read that, I had a smile on my face. Um, <laughs> and, and incidentally, both Munford and Gould were former um, NCOs in the, um, the Frontier Light Horse. So there's more, more men that come across. And, and Hughes is reduced to the rank of private and he goes on and um, he dies in California in 1888, actually. Wow. Guys in those days had such a fascinating lives, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the stories with these frontier light horsemen and others are just incredible when you you get behind them. And, and you know, for in the book, I researched every man, all 400 of them that served in Zululand, as far as I could take them. And, and even today, um, you, you know, I'm still finding little bits and pieces. I think I mentioned to you the other day that um, some on holidays and I, and I ducked into the Cape archives and... I by chance stumbled across um, the Sergeant Major um, Bernard Winterfeld at serving in the Frontier Arm Mounted Police back in 1870. So it was something that I thought was a possibility, but I only confirmed it the other day, just purely by chance. Yeah. So these little tidbits on these people are just going to keep emerging. Yeah, brilliant. And I mean, there's a few follow-up questions I want to ask you, but as we're talking about some of the, the quirky individuals, um, is, is there one or two guys, and I'd love it if you could also give us a little bit of what happened to Darcy and O'Toole, if you have that information, but are there any other guys you, you think had a particularly interesting career that you'd love to give us a potted history of? And I'm very aware we've been going a long time, so we can yeah. keep it quite short. Yeah, okay, that's fine. So, so essentially, um, he finds his way into the Cape Mounted Rifles, and there's a lot of myth about um, how he dies. Um, but he, he goes into the Cape Mounted Rifles and digging into the records, he picks up a troop. He's serving under Carrington operations um, against the Basuto um, breakout in 1880, and this is the gun war, and he finds himself in Basuto land, and he submits his resignation. And he pretty much cites to effect that he lost pretty much everything he owned in a camp that was attacked by the um, by the Basutu. And he was finding that it was difficult to make a living in the CMR. And he said words to the effect that these men are the, probably the best fighting men that I've ever served with, and it really pains me to leave them. But Carrington writes at the time, and he's passing it up, up the line, he, the comments to the effect that... Um, it's probably in the best interest that we um, we let this officer go, the interests of the, the regiment. So I don't know what was going on behind the scenes or not. And then, um, of course, it's not long after. He also does say 
I'm not going to leave the men in the lurch. I will stay until this war is finished. And he does. And he, he follows through. And he also wants to settle the accounts of the regiment. And then he um, he resigns from the regiment. He's permitted to leave. And he and it's not long after where he's, his bodies, he disappears. And then his bodies felt found out on the felt. Um, and then it was years later these stories emerged. I think it was as late as the 20s where they said, oh, he's, He's really alive and he faked his death, et cetera. And um, I don't personally believe it. There's not enough evidence to support it. But everything, everything at the time suggests that he, um, at least he he went out into the veldt and he didn't come back. And they they found him sometime after and he was, remains were nothing more than a skeleton. And then O'Toole, um, his end is also... A little bit mysterious and um, mystery is good because it keeps our minds active, keeps us researching. Um, but O'Toole, he goes down to the, um, <coughs> excuse me, down to the Cape and he doesn't join the Cape Mounted Rifles. Um, you, you thought that he would, but he, he emerges in the gun war and he, he's her, serving as a captain commanding a troop in what was known as the, the Herschel um, native contingent in the gun war. And so these were these men were operating, um, which would be down in the um, the far southwest of um, Basuto Landing, which was known as Morosi's country. And there'd been this war there in 1879, but operations in the Basuto War were ongoing there and, um, in 1880. In actual fact, they were very, very close to Morosi's Mountain itself when he performs the deeds very, very similar to what he had done in July 1879. So essentially they're, they're engaged with the, um, the Basutu. There's a, um, a heated encounter, very, very violent encounter. Uh, Captain Austin, um, who was a local magistrate, he was killed, as were a number of other men. And um, the medical officer tried getting out to um, bring in some wounded men, and all of a sudden he become in a found himself in a perilous situation. And um, O'Toole, what he did in 1879, dashes forward, mounted, brings the uh, medical officer up on his horse and, and just manages to escape. Now... That account is one of those typical things that has never been bought, never seen the light of day, and I only read about it in a, um, a very scanty operational report that was submitted later on. It was very much by the by, but um, um, an, an interesting event. So he, he later um, ends up in... Um, up in um, Matabili land and Shona land later become Rhodesia and he's working up there. He was with the Pioneer Column going in in 1890. And then after that, there's one, one school of thought is that they said that he, he died up in, um, up in Rhodesia. And another um, school of thought is that he, um, he left South Africa and died abroad. I've even heard Australia mention and whilst others say that he, he died down in the Cape. Um, but I think the closest thing to um, 
a grave where somebody suggested there was a, there was a grave identified at some stage for him up in Rhodesia. So he disappears. Um, and then as to the other men, um, let me just quickly skim over some of these other characters. The, the types that came into the, the regiment at one stage um, were from a vast and different array of backgrounds. You had a lot of blue bloods coming out there, you know, sons of, of gentry and peerage. Um, you had some seafaring men and people from working class backgrounds. But one group of men that emerged um, back in those King William's days in, in May 1879 was, was a gaggle of seven deserters from the Frontier Arm Mounted Police. Now, I, I always look at this desertion as, a, as an act of a more patriotic desertion. They, these men weren't um, shirking, um, you know, service. These men wanted to be a part of the Frontier Light Horse. Um, and just going over a couple of the characters, one guy, William Hurrell, who'd actually, um, he serves as a corporal in the Frontier Light Horse. After the war, he goes into the CMR, he deserts again. Then he's up in um, Matabele land in 1893, and he's a lieutenant in the Salisbury Horse. He's soon after a captain. Come the Boer War, he's a major serving in Kitchener's Fighting Scouts, and he's mentioned in dispatches for gallantry. World War I, he's a recruiting officer. So this guy doesn't shirk um, service, but he, I gather he just deserts for a bit more adventure. Little <laughs> respect, really I suppose. Yeah, and I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I mean, he goes back for a second go with the, the CMR. That, that made me laugh. But And then there's um, Trooper Frederick Warren. He was one of these deserters. He's also a former militia officer. I believe his father was a, a mayor back in the UK. He serves in the Zulu War um, later on with the Natal Native Pioneers after taking a discharge from the Frontier Light Horse. And then he soldiers on. He's a staff sergeant at one stage in the Dukes down here in Cape Town. And he serves um, as a sergeant major of the guides in the Bekuanland expedition in 1885. So just amazing characters. There's, there's a couple that end up serving with the New South Wales contingent um, in the Sudan in 1885. Um, one of those men between leaving the Frontier Light Horse, he also serves um, as an officer in the um, Transvaal Horse in the, in the Gun War. Um, this is Trooper Fred um, Bulmer. Um, tragically commits suicide in 1906 while serving with the New South Wales Police. Um, then this is an interesting character, Captain Arthur Oldfield. So he, he was well-educated. He served in the Ninth Frontier War as a trooper with um, a unit known as Balkers Rovers. And then he's commissioned into the Frontier Light Horse in January 1878, just before Buller takes command. Serves as a um, troop commander throughout Zululand. He later becomes a stockbroker. And in the First World War, he joins the Canadian Expeditionary Force, but he's mainly in training roles. But he's very elusive about his age and his previous service. And it's only towards the end of the war um, that the truth comes out that his real age is revealed. He's not discharged. They don't get rid of him. But he essentially, um, you know, his health starts to break down and then he's medically discharged in 1918 
and he's granted the rank of an honorary major. So he, he does well, gets himself over to France as well. Uh, another chap that ends up in the First World War, but he ends up in the South African Na Native Labour Corps, a chap called George Wise. So he serves with Ras Rangers in the Matabele War. He's in, in Grey Scouts. Yeah. In yeah. Matabele Rebellion in 1896. Um, and, and interestingly enough, he's wounded on a patrol, um, which was known as Captain Cecil Bissett's patrol, which was in April 1896. Bissett himself was a, um, a former Zulu War veteran. And so um, Wise finds himself wounded and dehorsed and typical of these VC actions at the time, a trooper Fred Baxter gallops out, picks him up and saves and Baxter awarded the Victoria Cross. Right. Um, so Wise, he was... In, involved with that, and he and he also serves in the the, the um, Land Rebellion. Um, why isn't he? He's in the Rhodesian um, Southern Rhodesian Volunteers at the beginning of the Boer War, and he goes on to Kitchener's Fighting Scouts. And he, he's lucky enough because at the end of the war, when they're sending the um, the coronation contingent, all these locally raised regiments in South Africa at the time send a very small number, like sometimes four or five to ten men, to represent the regiment at, at King Edward's coronation, and he's one of the men that's chosen to do that. Right, so. wow. Brilliant. Well, well, I think that gives us a great sort of slice of the, the characters who fought in the Frontier Light Horse. Amazing, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they, they are. They're, I mean, you could go on and on all day to talk about these guys. Fascinating. Well, so one of a guy, just quickly, before I've got one final question after this, just quickly, how important do you think Buller himself was to the character of the unit, the type of work they did and how successful they were? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I think he was pivotal. I think if they kept Carrington, the result probably would have been the same. They were very much of the, the same ilk. Um, Buller... I, it was really more aggressive, more aggressive leadership style in the field. Like, you know, he's always wanted to be on the offensive. Um, but as we talked about earlier on, I mean, clearly he really had a hold on the men. You know, when Darcy, Darcy took over command, um, you know, that I suppose the men maybe lost a bit of confidence. Hutton definitely thought so. You know, he said that now that Buller's gone, um, things are starting to go away a little bit. Um, so very much, I mean, Buller was the leader of this regiment. He knew how to um, he knew how to lead these men. He endured the hardships with them as well. He was well known to, he would walk around at night, he'd be checking the pickets several times a night. He would, if the men were sleeping on hard rocks, he was sleeping on hard rocks as well. Everything they did, he did the same. So very much um, from a leadership perspective, you know, Buller was the man that pulled this regiment together. And then with this, um, you know, as to the tempo of the operation, working in unison with Wood, that, you know, there was that great relationship there. They just kept this going. And, um, of course, they knew that they had, they had to keep the pressure off um, Pearson of the Shawi as well. Um, 
And he was definitely a brave man. I mean, his Victoria Cross as well um, was quite significant for the regiment at the time. Um, and when when he left that time, when he was brought close to tears, it was said that that Buller, as they walked through the camp and they said goodbye to the Frontier Light Horse in particular, you know, they'd say goodbye to the other regiment. Woods was Wood was with him. But they said that um, Buller was brought close to tears. He was really moved. And, uh, and, you know, he was greatly affected by leaving these men. Um, now, Captain Thomason, he wrote a book called With the Irregulars. That, that was published in 1881, hot on the heels of the Zulu War. So Thomason had served briefly with the Frontier Light Horse, and then he moved on to Baker's Horse. And he served under a, a chap called Watt Wally um, that helped him with put the book together. Watt Wally was, Wally was actually one of those officers who was wounded with the Frontier Light Horse back in May 1878. And once again, another fascinating, intriguing character. But Thomason summed it up and he, he said he believed that um, Wooler and the, the Frontier Light Horse, following all their experience, had, had, had formed a regiment that was most befitted for rough work in South Africa, and that's the way he summed them up. He, he talked about other regiments at the time in his book. You know, some were efficient, others weren't. But with the Frontier Light Horse, he specifically refers to, to Buller and the men of the Frontier Light Horse, you know, this amazing chemistry together that, you know, after all their experiences, that they really had something special and it obviously just wasn't meant to be that they weren't going to keep them brilliant well and the other question obviously given the nature of the work the frontier light horse did the constant patrolling the raids behind enemy lines the extraction of high value targets i guess in some cases how could we describe them as the special forces of the anglo-zulu war how fair would that be you know, I suppose if you had to put a put a label on a unit that was closely identified with special forces as we sort of know it from post-World War II or World War II onwards, um, definitely you could you could class the Frontier Light Horse as being of that that ilk. But going back to their original intention, their purpose of being raised, you know, back in 1877 and, and 78, no. Um, it, it was something that really just evolved. You know, this 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 long distant marches up from King Williamstown, um, up into the Transvaal and back down. It, it that in itself instilled a great discipline in these men and traveling long distances was nothing for them, you know but they could do it. And then, you know, as you suggested as well, these special tasks like the, the Evercolosini raid. I mean, what a fantastic initiative. You know, this is 11 days after Izanwana and let's go and launch an offensive, hit, you know, offensive operation that was fundamentally hit and run, get in there and get the job done, strike a blow, more of a psychological blow than anything and get out. And then, of course, they're sent into bring Prince Hamo out, and this is an occupied terrain. Enemy 
dominated terrain. So they go in and they extract hamu. That's specialised as well. Now, at the time, I'm struggling to think of any other unit that was agile enough and probably had the numbers to do this and to pull this kind of um, work off. And Chelmsford actually acknowledged the fact that they were quite special. Um, and I, I dare say we'd like other regiments to have been like them. And then, of course, in Muller himself, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of evidence that comes later on in his career that he, he thought like this, that, you know, the way that he used the Frontier Light Horse for these, these long-distance patrols and, um, you know, and a lot, a lot of them amounted to nothing and clearly they went into the field trying to close with the enemy so they were pursuing um, the enemy in what would be deemed as a fighting patrol these days. So Wood, Wood and Buller definitely thought like this, but later on in, in Buller's career, I, I noticed another unit I researched for the Anglo Boer War, the Colonial Scouts, that they were sent into Zululand at one stage in January 1900, and they conducted a, a flanking movement but their orders were to go in and drive the Boers out of help my car. And if they couldn't get in and do that, he wanted them to go behind the Boers and blow up the Washbank Bridge. Now, as it turned out, the colonial scouts um, went into Zululand and they're actually occupied um, for one night um, the camp at Isanwana again, um, which was quite interesting. But however, they retired out of Zululand and they didn't complete their objective. But the point is that Buller was thinking like this, you know, let's, this is Cologne, this is frontier light horse stuff that he was trying to um, pass on to the colonial scouts. And, and I believe from memory, there definitely were a couple of former frontier light horsemen serving in the colonial scouts and friend Addison, the commanding officer was a Zulu war veteran. The, the other thing at the time he signed off on as well was, um, lesser known it was what is known as the Kamati port raid and there was an individual that came out of the colonial scouts at the time um he was a quartermaster sergeant um ludwig um steinecker that had served with the german army um back in the 1870s as well and he came up with the idea how about we get behind enemy lines and we'll blow up the Kamati port railway and he took an eight-man patrolled into um, the Transvaal and um, I think they went up through Swaziland from memory and this is from 3rd of April to 17th of June 1900 they conduct this and he signs up on that as well so Buller definitely thought like this that the way that I suppose special forces um, operate from World War II onwards so Buller would have been you know if he was in the army today he he certainly would have been serving with you know, one of the special forces units. He's that kind of character, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, most possibly, possibly. I mean, it, as, a, as a personality, he definitely seems to have had it. And, and you look at the evidences there, what he did in, in the Zulu War, and that's when in research in the book, this is what really came out. I was even surprised at myself at the, at the high tempo of the operations and, and what they were doing. And we've only touched on the tip of the iceberg of what they were doing. There were many other, you know, interesting and dangerous patrols they conducted. So if anyone wants to go into real molecular detail about 
you know, both the men and the operations of the Frontier Light Horse. You've got this book, The Frontier Light, Light Horse in the Anglo-Zulu War, 1879. I'm holding it up now for those who are listening only. It's a bloody brilliant read. Even my dad's been reading it while he's been visiting me just now. If anyone wants to get a hold of this book and learn more, can they get it? Yeah, they can. So the best place to get it is um, David, Dave McClellan out at Select Books. He can send them across the world any couriers. Um, he's highly efficient. So he's the best person at the moment to get it from those that are those copies that are surviving. So is that, that select books in Cape Town and presumably people can contact them via their website? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Brilliant. And Cam, before we wrap up, you're a man with many irons in the fire. You're you're kind of the historian I want to be when I actually start getting good at this stuff. What what are you working on now? And what's your plan for the future? Yeah, okay, so Irons in the Fire. Um, Morosi's Mountain, I've, I've been sort of beavering away um, at for a number of years. And so this is 1879. This is running parallel to the Zulu War. And whilst not many characters from the Zulu War emerge with it, one or two get down there late, later on, but they're mainly in the commissariat. It, it's an area that really needs to be written about and um, people just fixate on the operations of the mountain. It was much more than that. It was a lot of patrolling. It, it even crossed over the Drakensbergs into um, the East Griqualand, their operations going on there. So I'm working on that. And then, of course, hot on the heels with that from a date perspective, you know, so that concludes as a, almost a year of peace. And then the, you know, the Cape government want to disarm everybody so they try to take away the Basuto's weapons and the gun war breaks out and we talked about that earlier on it's, it's just an immense subject there's so much material out archival material out there but nothing in print so I'm trying to put that together as well and so basically we'll have you back on the show to talk about both of those subjects once once you're ready to publish yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's a few other little slow burners in the background. In the same style of the Frontier Light Horse, I'd researched all the Natal Mounted Police from the cradle to the grave in the Zulu, where I'd, I'd done that research a number of years ago, three years ago, but I haven't got it to print yet. It's something I've, I've got to um, get onto and, and finish the preamble and the analysis of them. So there we go. I'm sure Cam will be joining us again soon to talk about his other projects and books. I really hope so, because Cam's a great guy, and as you can see, his enthusiasm shines through. I think as historians and lovers of British military history, we need more people like Cam. Anyway, in the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast and do consider joining my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. That way I'll be able to keep you up to date with all that I'm doing, including the tours I'm hoping to run in 2023 now that I'm a qualified tour guide. You'll also get a free copy of my book, The Military History Geek's Guide to the Anglo-Zulu War. You don't want to miss out on that. All right, guys, take care.